0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Angus Bergen. This week, we'll be hosting Frederick Logevall, the Lawrence D. Belford Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. Prof. Logevall is here to discuss a chapter from his upcoming biography of President John F. Kennedy. The first volume of this mammoth effort JFK, coming of age in the American century, was released two years ago to widespread critical acclaim. Once this second volume is released, the pair will surely constitute the definitive work on the ever popular, ever enigmatic president. The chapter under discussion today, JFK, The Road to Power, describes Kennedy's mentality, character and policy positions during the early part of a successful presidential campaign of 1960. Prof. Logoval's prior works have won many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for History, which he received following the publication of Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and The Making of America's Vietnam. One of the foremost experts of the American mid-century, and perhaps the person with the deepest knowledge of JFK alive today, we are thrilled that Prof. Logaval has agreed to talk with us. We are joined as well by Teo Zanu, a PhD candidate at Hughes Hall. Theo just last week submitted his thesis on Kennedy's foreign policy and has worked with Professor Andrew Preston throughout his time at Cambridge. Given his expertise, we're very thankful that he's joining us for this conversation. Just a small word of apology before we begin. There are a couple of moments throughout where the background noise decides to take centre stage, so I hope those moments don't disrupt the listening experience too much. Thanks again, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello and thanks for joining us again. We are once again in Cambridge, it's cold, clear, blue today, but very nice. It's the uh, 28th of November. Um, so today we're joined by Professor Frederick Logevall um, and Teo Zanou, who is a PhD candidate looking at Kennedy. Um, so thanks for tuning in and I'm just going to ask... Fred, to jump in, talk about the paper, talk about the paper's content for those who've not had a chance to read it, and how as well it fits into the larger project, which is this two-volume biography of JFK. So.
1: Well, it's very good for, of you to have me on. I'm delighted to be with you and to have this opportunity today to, to talk about this particular chapter. This is a chapter in the second volume of my JFK biography, and I selected this one which is really focused on the months after Kennedy's re-election in the U.S. Senate in 1958. He's already gearing up, more than gearing up. He is running for president. Not really announcing it yet, but he's running. And I selected this particular chapter because it tries to do a few different things. It obviously tells, I hope, the story of those months after that re-election campaign, in which, by the way, he won a huge largest re-election uh, margin, I think, in the state of Massachusetts in its history, so it accomplished you know, what he wanted. But in these months after, he is beginning more of a national campaign, so that's interesting. The chapter also talks about two books that he wrote um, in this period— the first is a book about American immigration, which I think has real resonances—it with it has a contemporary resonance that I think is interesting. So I talk about, about that and about immigration reform, his, his, his belief that the current quota system that existed at the time was unjust, needed to be reformed. And so that I thought was interesting. And I thought I could explore that in this chapter, and then toward the end of the chapter a book, which is really a compilation of his speeches in foreign policy, but at a critical moment in the Cold War, and I thought when I read the book, "Ah, eh, this is not going to be very interesting." It's a compilation of speeches, probably most of them written by others, including Ted Sorensen, his his chief speechwriter, and it's going to be it's going to be boilerplate. It's not going to have a lot to tell us, but quite the contrary, I found it a, a um, fascinating reading. And I thought, well, readers will also find this interesting. So what we get in the chapter then, I hope, is a sense of the strategy for the coming campaign. There are several key meetings that he and his team have that I write about in the chapter. Uh, I talk a little bit, I I zoom out to talk a little little bit about demographic changes in the United States Mm -hmm. and the population and the move to the suburbs, for example. And then, as I said, these, these two books... Oh, and then one, one other thing, an article in TV Guide about the importance of television. Absolutely revolutionary change that televi- television is bringing to American politics and to American life. In, let's say, the decade of the 1950s, Kennedy, I argue, understood this and understood the implications for uh, American politics in a way that few, if any, politicians did. And, of course, the piece which I uh, analyze and is in TV Guide, of all places, also, it seems to me, anticipates some of the things that have happened more recently, uh, including with respect to, I think, to the elevation of Donald Trump uh, in 2060.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, it's a very informative answer. Um, so. This is obviously happening before, but but why is he running for president, and what's kind of motivating him to do so? Just so we've got a bit more
1: context on on that front. Yeah, I, I think um, you know he's running for president um, in part because you know that's where the power is. Uh, I think he's he's no different from most people who seek that office or seek a leadership position in in a different government in a different country. It's about um, I think. Uh, achieving power, being able to wield power, I think he decides early on in his political career, even as a member of the House of Representatives in 1947, 48, 49, that as a House member, he's kind of a peon. He doesn't have much uh, authority over anything. And then, of course, he's elected to the Senate. He takes the next step up, if you will, in 52, becomes a senator. Now he's able to speak with, with a greater voice, especially on foreign policy, which is his primary interest. But let's face it, for him and so for so many others, the name of the game is to, is to, 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 to reach the top rung of the ladder. So that's, I think, a substantial answer to your question. The other thing one could say in response to, that, to, to the question is that I think there is some idealism uh, or a sense on Kennedy's part that I can really make a difference, that I can do something in this office for, for American security, in terms of foreign policy, and indeed I can also help in my own way to strengthen uh, American democracy at home. Uh, I do think that that's there, even if it's maybe a secondary uh, motivation.
2: And in order to achieve all these things, Kennedy has to get elected first. Yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah, of course, yes.
2: And in the paper, you recreate the first meetings yeah. of his campaign. And what's extremely su- surprising to us is to see how JFK was involved in the strategy down right. to the very districts. Yeah. Was he a modernizer? Did he change the way campaigns were run? You have a quote from Tip O'Neill, who was a Republican uh, leader of the House in the 80s, yeah. who basically tells us he changed yeah. again.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah I, think, I think Kennedy did understand. He was a kind of. Changer, almost a revolutionary, maybe that's putting it too strongly, but unlike other presidential contenders before him, and to some extent even while he was uh, running, he thought you, even in a national campaign, in a huge country like the United States, you're really going to have to win at the grassroots. You're going to have to travel the country, and you're going to have to get to meet voters, but maybe in particular, local party leaders. And you have to know who they are, you have to find out who's friendly, who's not friendly, who is persuadable, who isn't. And he, he even more than his campaign team, understood this. This was one of the, uh, the real revelations in the research, that Kennedy himself, far from needing to be schooled by these advisors, was in a sense telling them Here's what we have to do. One other point is key on this. I think that as a Catholic in an overwhelmingly Protestant country, JFK saw, okay, I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to travel farther. I'm going to have to spend more days traveling this great big country and getting to know people on that level. that was key. And then finally, as I said before, this the, the power of television was something he grasped. And that could be an asset for him as he's running.
2: Tell us about his personality when he's meeting all these voters, yeah. the 4 corners of America. Yeah. Is he a people-pleaser? Is he charismatic? Is he funny? How does he come across on a one-to-one if we yeah. were to meet JFK?
1: I think if we were to meet JFK one-to-one in, say, 1959, which is what we're talking about, I think he would be somewhat reserved he was not the kind of back-slapping politician who kisses babies and you know is asking people how's your mother give her my best that sort of thing he didn't go he didn't go for that kind of glad-handing if you will and he could actually be somewhat shy certainly reserved but on the flip side of that is um, i think in his speech making um uh, he became better and better, was able to convey both a kind of ideali- idealistic vision for the United States in, in a way that resonated with ordinary voters, but he conveyed humor. He was at his best often in the Q&A after the speech, the, the formal speech, because he could think on his feet. And then when he could meet voters in smaller groups, you know, in a church basement or you know, a union hall or something like that, they often commented on the fact that he seemed to be able to connect with them then. So he was showing, I guess my point is, he was gradually becoming what we would call a a very good retail politician, even if he had a certain emotional reserve which distinguished him from other politicians. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, If I could just jump in here, Um, one of my kind of takeaways from the paper itself was that this kind of glowing um, version of Kennedy. He's got a very positive representation across the chapter, you know, he's a hard worker, he's a shrewd political operative, he's an educated intellectual individual. So Um, what were his kind of character flaws? um, Mm. And what were his flaws as a campaigner um, across that? Did did you get a
1: sense of those? um, Yeah, it's a really good question. And I thought about that in selecting this particular chapter. Mm that it's it's very positive in terms of its portrayal of Kennedy. And I should say that my study overall, both volumes, this is certainly true of volume one, came out two years ago. I think it'll be true of volume two, which I'm working on now, that it's overall a sympathetic assessment. Mm-hmm. But this chapter maybe more so than, than most, um, that's the case. I, you know, I think his flaws, well, we can look at them in a couple of different ways. On a personal level, he certainly had flaws in terms of his uh, treatment of his wife Jackie and the fact that he cheated on her serially, really from the start of the marriage, which I talk about in volume one, up to if not the end, at least close to the end. Um, and you know, he he made well, as president, which is something we haven't gotten to yet, and is not really in this. It's not in this paper. There are certainly policy mistakes as president. Um, so there's a there's, a, there's a, um, a tendency, which he shared with other politicians, especially Democrats, to believe that he had to be an, a hawk on foreign policy in order to win election and then re-election. I would say that's probably a flaw, actually. This is something I have to figure out in this volume. Was it necessary for Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson or other Democrats to, in fact, come across as aggressively as they did with respect to Relations with the Soviet Union, I'm not sure. So I think that could be considered um, a flawed uh, judgment on his part. Um, And you ask about him as a campaigner. I think he's still finding his way. I don't know if it's in this chapter, but I talk in one of it might be the it might be chapter five, which is the one after this. I write about how he still had a tendency to speak too fast in his speeches. He had a tendency to speak over the heads of his audience. In other words, he assumed a greater knowledge on their part than they actually possessed, and so they would be a little bit lost. Um, and so he took too far the old adage that, you know, you should flatter your audience, you should you should make them feel smart and intelligent. I think he kind of he went a little too far in that direction. So even as a campaigner and as a speechmaker, he had a ways to go. He wasn't yet the kind of um, not consummate, but s- the kind of superior public speaker in some ways that he would become later. Well,
0: mm. oh, thank you. I um, will just want to follow up a bit when, regarding what you've said. So I think there is a tendency of biographers to kind of relate to the subject and sympathism, which yeah. you seem to be well yeah. aware of. Yes. Um, and obviously this is a gargantuan project you've got on the go. Um, so how do, are you kind of mitigating that tendency over such a large yeah. project? Is it an intentional thing? Um,
1: yeah, you know, this, you're quite right that we biographers do have a tendency to become um, too enamored of our subjects. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chronic, it's a very common tendency for biographers. You're quite right about this for biographers to do that. Once in a while you see the opposite, where a biographer seems to loathe the subject, and you have a sort of the opposite problem. Mm. I think it's imperative for biographers to, to, to put themselves as best they can into the shoes of their subject, so you need a certain empathy as a biographer. Maybe that naturally makes you somewhat sympathetic. Uh, I've thought a lot about this. Um, it's also probably the case that you undertake a biography in the first place, because you have an inkling, or maybe more than an inkling, you sense that this is somebody you're interested in. On some level, you like, you're fascinated by, you want to understand him better. That's, I think, certainly the case with me and JFK. I had written about him in previous books and articles, especially with respect to foreign policy, Vietnam, Cold War. I'm fascinated by this figure. So. Uh, I think the only thing I can do, Hugh, to guard against this is to try to not look at Kennedy either up in veneration or down in condescension. I'm trying to look at him straight in the eye. Uh, I think he's more interesting if we see his flaws in addition to his strengths, his mistakes in addition to his successes, makes him more human, uh, contradictions, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm conscious of in, in his persona and his character, um, while still acknowledging that ultimately I think he's a, he's a character who is extraordinary in many ways. I'm not going to sit here today and say he was a great president, because I don't think he lived long enough for us to make that kind of a judgment. I do think he had greatness within him um, and that's something that I hope in volume two I can develop including in what I anticipate will be a fairly substantial epilogue where I try to step back, talk about you know, what does this story tell us.
2: Yeah. And his theme of greatness is recurrent in the first volume yeah. as well. Yeah. There is something else that's a motif. But by telling the story of JFK, you're telling the story of America in yeah. the 40s, 50s, yeah. 60s. You're telling a larger story. How do you balance biography with history, mm. storytelling with argumentation?
1: Yeah, yeah it's, um, I think it's incumbent upon biographers to do this. That is to say, we need to place the subject of our biography in his or her time and place. So you need to go beyond the individual life and you need to uh, address change and continuity over time, place the person here into, into his world or her world. Um, and that's where I think my historian training, I hope, can be brought to bear. That said, this is ultimately a biography. It's not history. And I think, therefore, it's the, I have to, to think about the reader, and the reader is going to expect me to keep the focus on John F. Kennedy more than on anything else. The reader is justifiably likely to be impatient if page after page after page go by, and Kennedy is nowhere to be seen. So I thought about this in Volume 1. There are a few times when... Kennedy disappears from the from the narrative for five or six pages in volume one. And the same thing is likely to happen in volume two. Because, again, this broader story that I'm telling. But i got to be conscious of the need to bring it back, that I have to do that. Um, and so where there's a tension here, it has to go, it seems to me, or it should fall toward the biographical this is in the end the story of a life even if it's in a larger context
2: do you see any conflict between biography and history because you you said this is not history it's, it's biography yeah. it's also history it is yeah so i mean i think
1: i think that I, I think that and i'm not sure that all biographers would would agree with me on this but i do think it's a it's a subgenre of history that or let me put it this way that any good biography is also history. But I think you're quite right. The subtext, the question, you, the question you're posing, is there tension there? I think there is tension. Um, and I'm, I don't know that I have a good way of resolving it, except to say that, again, you've got to be mindful of this tension. You've got to understand that it's not quite the same as history um, because the focus is so much on an individual life it's probably more of a focus on narrative, uh, and it's probably although there have been biographers who've exper- experimented with this, and they've done they've done away with the conventional chronology, and you know they tell the story backwards or they they jump around a lot. I've decided to, to do the, to, to to write this one in a more conventional fashion, um, but the tension I think is there, and you. Uh, Navigate it, and perhaps you even differentiate between chapters so that in some chapters it's almost exclusively biographical. It's what happens in Kennedy's life, or maybe the, the life of his family. And in a different chapter, chapter two, for example, in this mm-hmm. second volume, where I have a lot on civil rights and on developments in civil rights in the United States, where somehow the history becomes larger and the biographical is reduced.
0: Yeah, um, just wanna—it's—it's it's fascinating distinction that you're making between history and biography, and I mean, as you're saying, that hinges on the reader. Um, so, who are you kind of imagining your reader to be? Who is this mm. book for? Um, I've got a follow-up to that, but yeah, if you just—Yeah, I—I so. I, I
1: think. I think the target, reader. Is a non-specialist. Who is. Reasonably knowledgeable about both American modern American history and and uh, world history developments outside the United States, um, and who wants to learn more about Kennedy doesn't need to be told you know you know who who was on the Allied side in World War II and who was on the Axis side. They know. So it's a, it's a it's a reasonably informed general reader could it could be in any number of different professions or no profession. However, I'm also wanting fellow specialists like the two of you, uh, academics. I want them to take the book seriously. Um, There is a tendency among academic historians to be somewhat dismissive of biography. Uh, uh, but, But I want those who do pick it up, maybe they've read something of mine previously, maybe they're interested in how I approach this topic I want them to come away from this and say, ah, Logevall actually has something to contribute. This is, you know, this works on the following, in the following ways, or at least that they they respect the effort and they get something from it. So they're not the target audience. That's who I said before. Mm -hmm. But I think about them. You know, when I wrote my dissertation, maybe the two of you are the same way, but when I was writing my dissertation, I'd often think, oh, I wonder about... You know such and such a historian will think of this paragraph or this argument. <clears throat> I don't really do that now because now I'm again writing for the attorney or the stockbroker or the teacher or um, but in the back of my mind I'm still thinking about what a scholar this or that historian academic historian will make of the argument, including in this particular paper.
0: no, I mean that's great and because I kind of wanted to ask you why do you Many historians kind of frown upon biography as a genre, and the kind because of, if I came here and said I want to do biography for my yeah. PhD, they, would, they wouldn't let me. Yeah. You know,
1: no, and I've I, I, it's it's a good point, and I have actually steered PhD students away from biography. I, I've told this anecdote before, but I once had a PhD student who came to me, and, and, and she said, "I want to write a dissertation on Arthur Schlesinger Jr." and the rise and fall of American liberalism. And my first thought, this is fantastic. The Papers are enormous. Schlesinger is fascinating. He's important both as a, as a historian and as a public intellectual. He was a Kennedy advisor. So intellectually, I thought this was great. And my instinct was to say she should do this. But I told her, same thing I think you are suggesting you would be told, which is, don't do this for, for a dissertation, which gets to, the, to your question. I think, rightly or wrongly, uh, academic historians are of the view that biography uh, is too narrow. It's too traditional, and that's used in the pejorative sense. Uh, uh, traditional, uh, it tends to isolate the individual from the from the broader forces in society. Um, and so people like me and others can argue, well, that's exactly what we're trying to not do. or We're trying to avoid that. We're trying to really place, in this case, Kennedy in his or her, uh, in his time and place. Nevertheless, I think there's a, a, a fear, a, a belief, perhaps justifiable, that um, biography or biographers don't do that sufficiently. The other thing I would say, Hugh, is that, and I've thought about this, I think works that emphasize structure, impersonal forces, have been in the ascendancy in our profession for the last two three decades. I think it's it's partly a result of a, a belief that it provides, to, to emphasize structure and subterranean forces, allow for a greater scope of erudition on the part of the scholar. They can show their the depth of their knowledge. So that's what's going on in part. And I think there's also a belief that profound developments need to have profound causes. So if you're writing about the origins of World War I, you can't make the argument that it's biographical, that it's the myopia of a few leaders of European states who somehow caused this great conflagration. It's got to be about deeper forces. That's an interesting debate to have, but I think that's, that's, a, that's a widespread belief.
2: Those individual decisions do matter and they do have an impact on history. And even before you started writing biography, yeah. that very argument was central to your work. Your yeah, first was book was it. called yeah. Choosing War. And yeah. it essentially argued that the Vietnam War was yeah. not this inevitable Greek drama, that it was a cause of decisions. Yeah. Your second book made a similar point about the origins as a Vietnam War on the fall of Indochina.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, I think in that respect, it's a shorter step for me, Teo, from history to biography than it might be for others. Because as you point out, really throughout my career, and this began with my dissertation, when I was interested in understanding how the escalation of the war in Vietnam happened, I decided pretty early on in that project that in fact Johnson in particular and his top advisors. Had a genuine choice. They were choosing from a menu of alternatives, none of them particularly good, I grant you, but they could have gone in a different way. I still hold to that view. And so for me, as you're pointing out, contingency and human agency matter a lot uh, in history. Uh, that's something I just, I think, determined. Long ago, it of course depends on the questions that you're interested in. I'm primarily a historian of decision making, and maybe partly for that reason, you know, I'm drawn to look at decision makers and the choices that they do or they do not have, the decisions that they make, why do they make them, um, and I would argue to go back to the to the example that I raised, that in fact, individual decisions by individual leaders in 1914 were critical to the outbreak uh, of the war. It doesn't mean that there aren't also obviously long-term, more structural causes for World War I, but, uh, but the, the people matter too.
2: And somebody who agreed with you was John F. Kennedy. Yeah. He was a student of history. He believed in the importance of leaders, and yeah. great leaders, to change the course of events. Yeah. His very speeches, maybe one of his most famous speeches in 1963, called The Strategy of Peace at American University, says nothing is inevitable. Yeah. If problems are made by man, they can be solved by man. Yeah. Tell us about Kennedy's approach to leadership yeah. and his philosophy of history.
1: Yeah, oh, it's such a good point you're making. And, of course, you know a lot about this. And so it's great that you brought up the American University speech. Uh, really one of the great speeches of Kennedy's career. I mean, this would be an interesting discussion over over pints of beer to talk about his (laughs) his great speeches, but that one certainly belongs on the list because of what it says about the Cold War, the changes that he imagines being possible in the superpower relationship. And of course, as you know better than I know, Khrushchev actually orders that the speech be printed and and uh, and and be made available to Soviet citizens. So he saw that the American University speech was was of monumental importance. Um, and of course, back to back in June, that you have the you have the Civil Rights speech, and you have the American University speech on consecutive days. So, but I think I think in terms of. You're right, though, too, to emphasize that this was something he was interested in from an early age, even as an undergraduate at Harvard. He was fascinated by leadership and what's required of leaders in democracies. How do you square you know, your conception of what is best for the country, if you're a leader, with the often fickle demands of your constituents? You know, how and 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 if you want to be reelected, which is the name of the game for a politician, how do you how do you reconcile those two things? Sometimes, you know, there it's a symbiotic thing. you're 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 on the same page as your constituents. But when you're not, what do you do? This interested Kennedy from an early point. His senior thesis at Harvard was really about um, Britain in the interwar period and why it was that, in his view, Britain was unprepared for war in nineteen thirty nine. Um, And he was especially interested here in leaders and constituents and interest groups and how a leader can do what he, in that case, he thinks is right and still win popular approval, or can they? And I think he's interested in that throughout his life, right up to the end in Dallas. Uh, It's also central to his second book, Profiles in Courage, 1956. And the people he thought were courageous were those who resisted the demands, at least in some cases, of their constituents in order to do what was best for the country. That's, I think, a timeless, um, what's the word? Well, a timeless lesson or something we should all ponder, those of us who are uh, fortunate enough to live in democracies. uh, And it should condition, at least to some extent, what we demand of of our leaders.
2: Another timely lesson is how he used the media and television to communicate in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And he saw very early on both the advantages Mm -hmm. of being broadcast in every sitting room in the country and the dangers.
1: he did. He did. And you know, this article that I mentioned in TV Guide, which is a, a, a quite stunning piece in my view talks about both the, the, the pluses here and the potential dangers. He talks about how, you know, it's a good thing that television has arrived, that in fact, you can now know much better than before what Dwight Eisenhower is like or what, I don't know, Joe McCarthy is like, what Anthony Eden is like if you're in, uh, in Britain or whatever. And that's a good thing. And it's also harder because of tele- television for the party bosses in Kennedy's view, the party bosses, too, in the smoke-filled rooms, as they say, mm-hmm. decide on who should be nominees, who should get this job, that job. It's going to be not, It's going to be much more now. Uh, the people being involved in this. On the flip side, he understood, and he says in this article that history, I'm sorry, that television simplifies. Television erases the past. Television does not do well with nuance in public policy, with the sort of complexities of governance. Not good at this. And moreover, he said, television makes it very possible for demagogues who will come along and speak into the television and sway, you know, millions of voters uh, in ways that Kennedy understood even then could be really dangerous. And, and so. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed message that he gives us, but I think a powerful one.
0: I just want to ask you a bit more about this TV school that Kennedy went to. Yeah. Who put it on? Who else was in the yeah. classes? What, what do we know? You know, what did he learn?
1: It's 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 a it's an NBC. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's a class in the summer of 1951 that he enrolled in. I looked really hard in the Kennedy Library, and maybe, maybe I missed a box or you know some <laughs> folder that told me more about this because I was so interested in finding out exactly these questions: Is it a week-long thing? Is it two afternoons? Who's the instructor? Who else is taking it? What's the curriculum? I wasn't able to learn much except that it was uh, at least several days in duration, pr- presumably for a few hours each day. And it was about, uh, it was a, partly about, you know, how to look into a camera. Uh, should you be facing straight on? Should you not? Should your eyes waver? You know, basic questions like that for people who were, I mean, none of these people had really used television before. So they needed to know the basics. And it was it was that. And then as I understand it, it was also a little bit about, um, What kind of an audience can you hope to reach with television? How do you maximize that reach? What's involved? Kennedy got, I think, partly from this class, and then also from his own subsequent use of television. He understood that it was partly about money, and one of his concerns in the TV Guide article, which he talks about and I write about in the chapter in this paper, is that the wealthier candidates would be able to use television more than the less wealthy candidates. And that's a problem for democracy. But that also was something that this class made clear, was that if you have the means, you can use television uh, in ways that others can't. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think there's a couple of really interesting questions that this throws up in the contemporary moment. We've obviously just had a President Trump who used uh, television, the media—you yeah. um, know—he was a reality TV star. Sure. So, I have two questions in that regard. The first is, how would Kennedy have thought of Trump um, mm. and the, that presidency? And the second one is, how would Kennedy have fared in today's media landscape mm. as a, uh, as a kind of intriguing counterfactual? Mm-hmm. I know Kennedy studies are full yeah. of counterfactuals. But.
1: Yeah, I think on Trump he would have been. I think he would have been appalled, and I think he he would have on some level seen the possibility of a Trump arising for the reasons that we discussed. So in that sense, I don't think he would have been entirely shocked by the rise of this figure. Let's remember that Trump has certain things in common with Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was, of course, of Kennedy's era. In fact, as I write about at length in Volume 1, to some extent in Volume 2, Kennedy's perceived ties to McCarthy were a real problem for him in terms of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. They didn't trust Kennedy because they thought he had been cozy with McCarthy. Um, so, But I think in terms of uh, what Trump has—what uh, what he has represented, what he, has, uh, what he uh, achieved or accomplished, uh, however you want to put it, in his four years as president, I think Kennedy would have been very distraught by this. One of the, one of the speeches that Kennedy—the the speech that Kennedy did not get a chance to give It was destined—he was destined to give it a a Dallas trademark on the day he was assassinated. So he was on his way to the trademark when he was killed. That's a really interesting speech. Among other things, he says in that uh, speech—he insists in that speech on the absolute uh, importance. It's really imperative, Kennedy says, to insist upon rational, fact-based discourse. And he talks about this, and his hope he says—or again, or he would have said if he had been able to deliver the speech—is that you know, we can't hope as leaders or Americans to entirely um, solve the potential problem posed by those who, who, who use a non-fact-based discourse, who lie and who dissemble, but maybe what we can achieve is a situation whereby fewer people, as he put, he puts it, believe in nonsense. So that's a, in a sense anticipating exactly what Trump represents. And I think he um, he would have been um, he would have been that's my guess is he would have been very disturbed by by what Trump represents. I think how he would have fared in the media landscape that we're in today is a really interesting question. Um, I think. You know, his famous press conferences—if you think about those for a minute—today, um, those were celebrated at the time. I think they were key to his success as president, so I intended in the book to do a lot with the press conferences. But today, the minute he finished one of those press conferences, Twitter would have exploded. Social media would have been, you know, just talking about all this. He would have been attacked from this side, supported from this side. It would have been a really different environment than the one he encountered. And let's remember, people are more uh, cynical about government today. They're less likely to trust in authority figures. That, I think, would have been difficult. You know, he would have been, I think, this is a large question, but I think he would have been much less reckless in terms of his personal behavior in today's media environment. Because if he tried to do what he did, today what he what he did then if he tried to do that today i think it would have be uh, he would have been crucified but i don't think he would have i think he would have understood well i can i can i can't behave in this fashion i still think ultimately that john f kennedy would have been as likely as anybody even in this difficult environment that we're in today to to see through it and to work through it and be able to reach a sizable number of Americans, uh, in support of this thing we call, you know, American democracy. Um, he would have been as likely as anybody to, 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 to work through uh, the, the, the obstacles and the challenges that your question suggests, but of course, I'm guessing. We can't, we can't really know. No, thank you.
2: But he did walk through some of these same challenges in the early 60s. The country was divided on race, mm. and he took a leadership stance. Yeah. The war was divided between America and Russia. Yeah. Wars, global war might erupt. Yeah. Ukraine, Putin, Russia today. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, he did. He did. You're, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm cutting you off, but I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. He also, I thought you were going to also mention one other thing. He faced his own right wing, test uh demagogic um, opposition, and in fact. His advisors said to him prior to the fateful trip to, to, to Texas, they said, Mr. President, we don't think you should go because we're concerned for your safety. So he saw some of this even then, and you're right also in terms of the opposition to civil rights, that he was he was late in coming to civil rights, let's be honest. But he did come around. I think in a, in a quite profound way in '62 and especially in '63, and as a result faced deep opposition in the South, in particular, to that stance. And then, as you as you also say, the Cold War. So, yeah, you should finish tail with if there was more to the to the to the question or to the point you're making. But I would I would agree with you. It's important to remember that he faced some at least analogous pressures. To those that a president would face today,
2: and that's why your book and your second volume will be extremely relevant, yeah. and uh, a great success for sure.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's obviously my hope. I, th- I think that uh, I think he's um, he's both a fascinating figure. I think also a consequential figure, um, and I think his story. This is in a way the conceit of the book. That you know his story is is one that opens up i don't know what to call it avenues for, for understanding not only america in the middle decades of the 20th century but also the world uh, or certainly the world politics in those middle decades of the 20th century if i if i can if i if i can illuminate that broader context both in the united states and in the world in addition to telling his his story, then on some level at least, I feel like I'll have succeeded.
0: Yeah, I think you will have done, and I was gonna ask for a final question from Teo or some sort of summing up speech, but I feel like you both did pretty well with uh, the ones that you've already asked. Um, very so well. If, if we end there, just say thank you very much to Fred for coming in, and thank you very much Teo for thank your you. questions.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Professor Frederick Logevall discussing a small part of his upcoming JFK biography. We hope you enjoyed listening and are looking forward to the next episode. Over the Christmas period, uploads will be sporadic, but please do be on the lookout for more podcasts in the near future. Thanks again, and I hope you stay well. Goodbye.